This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My name is Christopher Bishop, and I'm your host. My guest today is Patty Lee, the Chief Scientist at Honeywell Quantum Solutions. I met Patty virtually at a Women in Quantum Summit last year. She was part of an online career fair team describing opportunities in quantum information science at Honeywell. By the way, if you're not aware of these events, I encourage you to Google Women in Quantum and sign up for the next one so you be informed. Patty is the Chief Scientist at Honeywell Quantum Solutions, where she leads the technology roadmap efforts to scale up trapped ion computers. She received her Ph.D. in physics from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where she developed phase control techniques for quantum logic gates in trapped ions. Since joining Honeywell in 2016, her work is focused on the quantum charge coupled device, QCCD, architecture for trapped ion computers. About Honeywell, they're a Fortune 100 company that invents and manufactures technologies to address tough challenges linked to global macro trends such as safety security, and energy. The company employs approximately 110,000 people worldwide, including more than 19,000 engineers and scientists. So, Patty, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about uh, the quantum journey so far. The idea is I want to provide listeners with a sense of what you did before you worked at Honeywell Quantum Solutions. My objective is to not only let people know more about you, but also to provide perspective for the emerging quantum-ready workforce, give them ideas on how to get involved in quantum information science. So please share a bit about your background and your path so far, where you grew up, how you came to study physics at the university, um, maybe talk a bit about companies or organizations where you worked and what you did there. Uh, so growing up, I think I've always been uh, interested in math and science. And uh, when I went to college at Caltech, uh, it was the first time I had uh, really experienced what physics research is like. And so um, I-, I was actually involved in nuclear physics research. And so I spent my summers uh, working at uh, MIT's Bates Linear Accelerator Center, um, building apparatus and you know programming system controls and analysis software uh, for an experiment uh, that was measuring the nuclear properties of uh, protons and quarks. Mm. And I really wasn't uh, doing anything or didn't even know anything about quantum computing uh, until I started graduate school at University of Michigan uh, this is, uh, in 2000. Um, and at the time, there was a new professor there. Uh, his name is Chris Monroe. Uh, you might know him as yes. the founder of IonQ. <laughs> yes. Uh, there you go. <laughs> he convinced me that uh, a quantum computer uh, will really change the world one day. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if we could just figure out how to build that hardware, um, you know, good things will happen. Back then, you know, people were trying to find out more robust ways to entangle ions. And there was this uh, promising scheme that was proposed by uh, Klaus Molmer and Anders Sorensen uh, that looked really nice on paper. Um, but when people tried it in experiment, um, there were some issues uh, with stabilizing phase that makes it sort of unusable in a quantum computer. 
And of course, as a young graduate student, I didn't know any of that. Um, and so just working from first principles, uh, we figured out ways to control that phase um, a little with a little bit of luck and sort of a little bit of uh, sort of deeper analysis. Um, and so this Mulmer Sorensen gate is uh, what we use at Honeywell's quantum computers today. Um, and I think IonQ is also uh, using the same gate as well. Hmm. Um, so that's how I got started wow. in quantum computing. Um, and then after I got my PhD, um, I wanted to uh, work with uh, neutral atoms because um, at the time uh, there's this new exotic form of ultra cold atoms called Bose-Einstein condensate. Um, and, and it's the coldest form of matter in the universe uh, in nanocalvins from uh, absolute zero, right? Mm. And so I did my postdoctoral research um, at uh, NIST, uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology at uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, uh, with Trey Porto and Bill Phillips. Oh, yeah. um, Bill Phillips is a Nobel Prize in physics uh, for laser cooling of atoms. Mm. Um, and so um, we, we start out with these uh, Bose-Einstein condensates, really cold atoms, and we load them into an optical lattice uh, formed by you know, laser beams. And uh, we were able to sort of pair up you know, these individual atoms that are really cold, um, and we pair them up with their neighbors and entangle them. And so this was the first time anyone had demonstrated a two-qubit gate uh, with neutral atoms. Uh, so that, that, that was very exciting. Uh, nowadays, people use Rydberg atoms instead of this exchange interaction we used, um, right. but but that was sort of part of the uh, neutral atom uh, quantum computing development there. Yeah, after well, my post after NIST. Yeah, so what happened after NIST, right? Yeah, uh, so I had got a position at the Army Research Lab, hmm. um, doing more cold atom research um, with uh, for a quantum sensing and atomic clock applications. Um, and so uh, we, we also started a quantum network project uh, connecting labs from uh, the Army Research Lab to University of Maryland um, with entangled photons because we were just a few miles down the road from each other. Um, so that, that was pretty fun. And that, that project is still ongoing at uh, Army Research Lab, and they've, they've made the great strides in, in that area um, or in recent years after I left. Yeah. And so, oh, and then after that, and around 2013, um, a friend called me up and asked if I would be interested in working at Lockheed Martin. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, at the time, I was curious about how these technologies transfer from research lab to yeah. industry. You know, I, I think I was starting to realize that for uh, a lot of this research to have impact on people's lives, um, industry plays a really important role. And they have to apply these uh, research to and and put into things that people can use, right, on a very large scale. And you can't get that uh, in a in a research lab. Right. And so um, I got to work on different projects at Lockheed, and I learned a lot about how things work in industry, how to approach engineering a product uh, instead of just sort of uh, putting something together as a demo and write a paper about it. Right. Um, so that that gave me uh, a very different perspective, I think, uh, on things. And then, how did you end up at Honeywell? So, for the, from Lockheed mm -hmm. to Honeywell. So, yeah. So this was around 2016. Uh, I've heard uh, from people 
that Honeywell was opening a new office in Colorado, and uh, they intended to invest in trapped iron quantum computing. And so uh, mm. I knew some people at Honeywell uh, at the time, and so I contacted them to find out what was going on. And so um, they, they had already uh, done some pretty advanced work on uh, trap fabrication uh, by then. And, um, you know, after talking to them, I, I was very impressed with the leadership and the technical team. And so I signed up with them and I was there at the opening day of the Broomfield site. Wow. Um, and we've grown and evolved so much since then. And uh, it's just been uh, very exciting uh, to work uh, alongside some really amazing people uh, as part of the team. Yeah, great. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. So I have to ask, and I'm sure our listeners are curious, you know, how a company like Honeywell, you know, that has been around for over 100 years, and not too many companies can say that, that's a pretty major accomplishment, how they got involved in quantum. So the company's focus historically has been more around sort of building technologies that deliver like automation and control systems, say for industrial facilities or involved in aerospace or manufacturing, as well as certainly safety and productivity solutions. So how did the company make the move to quantum? Honeywell actually has a lot of advanced technologies. Most consumers don't really associate with the brand. Sophisticated sensors for aircrafts um, and industrial plants um, and obviously control systems, you know, for these, these uh, complex, you know, buildings or aircrafts. And so uh, some of the products, um, such as uh, optical gyros and atomic clocks, um, they're very much aligned with mm. trapped ion quantum computers. Our qubits are really uh, very good atomic clocks, and we just use them to do quantum computation, right? Mm. And so, um, that, so, in fact, the technology that's needed to build a trapped ion quantum computer, um, like lasers and vacuum systems and cryogenics and electronics, um, these things had already existed in Honeywell in different applications. Uh -huh. And that kind of technology portfolio just uh, doesn't exist in your typical semiconductor industry. Yeah, so, you know, that, yeah. I think that puts Honeywell in a very good uh, position. And so about 10 years ago, uh, some people at Honeywell recognized that, uh, you know, that, hey, they, they have the, all these foundational technologies and, and for trapped iron quantum computing. And so they started working on like pulling everything together. Um, and so initially, you know, the focus was on traps uh, because Honeywell mm -hmm. has a, a microfabrication facility that is well suited for making ion traps. And so uh, they, they partnered with GTRI to make a highly sophisticated device uh, with through silicon vias and bond bonds and, and all these features that, you know, a, a normal, you know, uh, research lab, you know, at a university, I uh, wouldn't be able to develop. And so that was the foundation uh, for our current uh, ion traps um, that allow us to build these uh, highly sophisticated control for this quantum CCD architecture that we use in our quantum computers. Oh, yeah. So thank you for explaining that. It makes total sense now that you describe it. I would like to ask about real world applications, right? So Honeywell, with as a you know, historically successful company, again, dealing with complex technologies, has deep and trusted relationships, right, with customers. So can you share 
you know, with our listeners, you know, where and how you're applying quantum solutions, uh, maybe a share a customer example. Sure. So uh, earlier this year, um, I think uh, BMW actually used our quantum computer uh, to solve a supply chain optimization problem. And so um, we know that the quantum computers can be very good at this. And uh, there's a algorithm called uh, quantum approximate optimization algorithm or QAOA. Mm. Um, And so um, so you can write programs uh, on a very small scale, obviously, for, for current systems um, to test that. And so they were able to translate uh, their problem uh, in supply chain into a real quantum algorithm. And they compared the results from this QAOA um, program uh, to their classical optimization right. algorithm. And they found that uh, at least the version that they wrote uh, on their first try um, was comparable to the classical algorithm. And so obviously there have been many variations and people are always developing new tricks and new ways to get better solutions and, and do it faster and better. Um, and so, you know, this this is just a start of uh, research into, you know, how do you construct uh, these quantum algorithms right. that will someday be useful as we get bigger and better hardware um, and as the algorithm improves. Yeah. So there are lots of ways to measure impact of and or power of quantum computers, right? So I want to take a moment and talk with you about quantum volume. Um, Your site describes Honeywell's trapped ion-based quantum computing hardware as having recently achieved a quantum volume of 1,024, 1024, the highest measured on a commercial quantum computer to date with further advances uh, in progress or underway. Can you explain a little bit about that for our listeners? A quantum volume is a metric uh, that was actually proposed by our friends at IBM. Um, I think uh, many years ago, um, the conversation was about how many qubits you have in your system. And uh, for those of us working in the field, uh, we understand it's not just about the number of qubits, it's really the quality of your qubits, um, the errors in your uh, comp- in your operations uh, that matters, right? So to make it sort of a, a more fair game, right, to account for both the number of qubits and sort of the error rates in your system, uh, they devised this protocol, this test for quantum volume, where you have to ha- your circuit has to be um, as deep. A uh, number of layers of operations has to equal the number of qubits that you're using. Um, and so that's your quantum volume. And so um, if you, your system is large enough, then you can sort of a- expand this quantum volume to sort of like the maximum your system can handle. And that's metric to measure how good your quantum your uh, quantum computer is. It, it's really nice because it, it really accounts for uh, all the system errors, um, including the ones that we don't usually talk about, like crosstalk, or you know, sometimes uh, these quantum operations will uh, degrade over time as the circuits gets longer and longer. Uh, and so these, so so quantum volume kind of takes into account all of that, um, and so. And it's nice because it's a standard protocol. You just follow the script, the, the prescription, and you either pass or fail the test, right? You don't try to calculate or extrapolate from other metrics, um, and you just run the test and get the answer. 
And so when we started offering our first quantum computer, um, the model H0 uh, for a customer use, uh, this is in late 2019, uh, we had a quantum volume of 16. So we are limited by our uh, four qubits in the system. And by June 2020, we already had a quantum volume of 64, uh, which was a world record at the time. Um, that was only, uh, yeah, about a year ago. And so there we ran out of qubits on H0, um, but we were already building H1, the, the, the next generation system. And so uh, we launched that in October uh, 2020 um, with a quantum volume of 128. Um, so we just keep breaking our own wow. record. Yeah. And the most recent one we measured uh, was uh, quantum volume uh, 1024 in July of this year um, with a fully entangled 10 qubits in our system. And so we're, we're trending about uh, 10 times uh, increase in quantum volume a year. Um, and so we hope to continue that trajectory uh, for years to come as we increase the number of qubits um, and also improve our error rates uh, as we go. Yeah. So congratulations on that. So the great segue into talking about error rates. So certainly we're in the era of NISC, right? Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum. Mm -hmm. um, but I understand that uh, addressing this challenge is an area of focus for the team at Honeywell, trying to reduce the error rate. Can you share a little bit of detail around how you're doing this? What are you doing to address this? Uh, certainly. We, um, look, we, we work on it, um, both obviously improving the hardware, right, and also improving the methods um, that we calibrate our system, um, we operate our system. And so... Um, and these things uh, are, are these upgrades are happening uh, as our customers are using it. So uh, periodically we take it off the system offline and do the upgrades. And next time you came back online, then our customer finds that it's performing a lot better. And so um, so so that's ongoing. Um, but we're also working on uh, mis on uh, quantum uh, error correction. Um, which is sort of the think of it as a software version, so, a software construct that helps uh, deal with some of these errors. And so basically, you can construct these logical qubits from multiple physical qubits to make one logical qubit. And so you can protect against it, uh, against a lot of the noise that's in your system, and you can you can detect errors and correct them. Um, and so we recently demonstrated uh, this logical qubit uh, with real-time correction using what's called a color code. And so um, our system can actually detect the error and actually um, go in and uh, fix those errors in real time uh, on, on that logical qubit. So it was pretty cool. Wow. Very impressive. So on your site, you describe something that our listeners may or may not be familiar with called a, a mid-circuit measurement. Uh, described as a unique feature that allows qubits to be selectively measured at a point other than the end of a quantum circuit. So what is that exactly, and how does it accelerate or improve quantum calculations? Yeah, so I think we, we recognize at uh, some point that in the computation, like a given circuit, sometimes um, you would measure right a, a one of the qubits um, before you need to use you know another qubit. And so what we can do is kind of recycle those qubits in the middle of the circuit. And so we would read out the qubit um, and leaving the others alone, right? So they still have the, the quantum information. And then we can reset that qubit 
and then entangle it back with the other qubits. And so your computation can happen. And so that has allowed people to actually execute circuits that would normally take a lot more qubits, right? Some some, some of these circuits are, are a little ridiculous. Like you can do circuits that would normally take 100 qubits um, and then you can pack it in uh, in a handful of them. Uh, of qubits that we have just by measuring it and putting back a repeat over and over again. And so uh, that, that's, that's a really nice feature. But more importantly, um, what our system can do is that once you read out you know, your one or two qubits in your system, you can change your program, follow-on program on your quantum circuit, um, depending on what the measurement outcome is. So if you measure a one, then you do something. And then if you measure a zero, you can do some other you know, program, right? And so it's like an right. if statement in the middle of your quantum circuit. Huh. And so this conditional logic is pretty unique to our system yeah. uh, because it's our, uh, these trapped ion qubits are so, they, they have such a long coherence time that they can just sit there while we process, we measure, do the measurement uh, and figure out the outcome and then perform the rest of the circuit. And this is also very, also exactly what's needed uh, for quantum error correction. Right, because the quantum error correction is you measure uh, whether you have an error has occurred or not, depending on what you read out on your uh, ancillas. Um, then you may have to do a different correction to your data qubits, and so um, this conditional logic is very powerful and absolutely necessary for fault tolerant quantum computing. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, mid circuit measurement, fascinating. So we'd mentioned the H0. So now I read that the Honeywell system model H1 is now available commercially. Can you tell our listeners like how it works, how you access it? Uh, what does it cost? How do you book time on it? Some just more details about what it is and how it's working. Sure. Uh, H1 operates on the same principle as H0. Um, it's, it's this quantum CCD architecture where the qubit information is stored uh, in the internal electronic states of individual ions. Um, and uh, these ions are charged atoms, so our device can physically move them uh, from one location to another, right? To and then so we have specific regions, specific zones, where these quantum operations are take can happen uh, use where we send in the laser beams to interact with ions. Um, to perform these quantum operations. So uh, this is a little different uh, from some of the superconducting qubits, for example, where they lay out the circuit uh, when they build the device. Um, for us, we build the device and we move the circuit as we are running the program, right? Uh, and so um, the, this gives us all-to-all -all connectivity um, and uh, on our qubits, because if you want, you know, qubit from one end of your device uh, to entangle with qubits from another end of the device, we just drag them together and then we we entangle them. Um, and so th this makes uh, gives us really good performance. And uh, we have also, you know, these these trapped ions are are we have really coherent long coherence times. They really are like atomic clocks. Um, and so, uh, you know, during transport, all this quantum information uh, is really experiencing very little decoherence. 
Um, right now, H1 is running with 10 qubits or more. And the error rates uh, for state preparation and measurements and gate errors are all better than 99.5% fidelity. Um, and this is the highest you will find in any commercial quantum computer. And uh, we have we, we programs in ca- uh, what's it the quantum assembly language, uh, CASM, uh, Open CASM. Um, you can, users can access it through the cloud. And when you get an account, you can log into our portal and send your quantum compu- uh, program uh, to the machine queue. And the system will run the program when it's available and send back the results. Um, you can also access H1 through Microsoft's Azure Quantum. Uh, and there are also pro, uh, plugins uh, for our system from platforms uh, such as Ticket, Qiskit, QSharp, Penny Lane, and others. Um, these things are always evolving pretty quickly. So um, you can people can contact us uh, to get that latest information on, on the tools. Great. Well, thank you for explaining that. Uh, I always like to get into specific real-world use cases whenever possible, although certainly we're in the early stages of quantum computing. But I read that Samsung and Imperial College London researchers used Honeywell's system Model H1 to explore uses of quantum computing in battery development, tackling, uh, in this case, complex algorithms that might be too daunting for conventional computers. Can you give us a status of this project? And more broadly, what's your take on the implications of this kind of, say, breakthrough battery technology? Yeah, so quantum computers are, are very good at uh, simulating quantum systems, right? So um, in this case, um, the, the project Samsung did with Imperial College uh, was a simulation of spin chains. Um, and, and H1, system model H1, they could run these really deep circuits um, I think they said over a hundred uh, two qubit gates, uh, which is pretty tough for a quantum computer these days. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, this, this system is still not large enough uh, to simulate the very complex spin interactions um, that people may be interested in um, right now. But uh, you know, just proving that um, you can go from a physics equation. To, that describes the spin interactions in your material and then translating that to a quantum program and then extracting quantitative physical properties of the material. You know, things like uh, the ground state energy um, of the system. Um, and uh, that, that's a big step, really, towards um, finding better materials for batteries in the future. Um, and so... As these, uh, you know, simulations improve, as our quantum computers get more capable um, in the future, um, I think that's where where the Im- really big impact uh, you, you will, will will materialize. Um, but right now, I think it's it's just proving out that you know we can actually do some simple calculations, and then we can check with the classical computer still right now <laughs> to make sure we we get the right answer on the quantum right. computer. For me, as someone who's interested in helping enable the quantum-ready workforce, I want to get your perspective on challenges facing a company like Honeywell Quantum Solutions and finding talent. As I mentioned in the opening, you know, you and I met at the Women in Quantum Career Fair, where you described a range of employment opportunities at Honeywell. Um, worth mentioning on your website, there's a long list of universities, including Caltech, MIT, Stanford, University of Chicago as well as various national and military laboratories that look like you partner with or maybe get resources from. 
Can you share a little bit about the process for identifying talented people looking to work in the quantum space? Yeah, I think we um, really for rely a lot on the professional work uh, network of our team uh, to find uh, the talents and for people with quantum experience. Um, but really, a lot of the uh, work um, doesn't necessarily require that you understand quantum. Right? There's still a lot of uh, mechanical and electrical en- and software engineering that needs to be done uh, in that space. And so um, we have sort of a mix of people coming in with the quantum information training and also people who have, doesn't know anything about quantum computing, um, but can bring in a lot of uh, different ideas and, and different perspectives uh, from different industries. And so that has worked out well for us uh, to have that kind of mixing. Um, and uh, um, so we, we also have internships uh, for our students. Great. Um, if yeah. they're interested in trying out, uh, see what it's like uh, to work in a quantum computing company. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's worked out well having sort of people with very diverse backgrounds um, being able to uh, offer and contribute their, uh, their, their ideas, um, their perspective, and also learn from each other on the job. Yeah. Great. Now, thank you for sharing that perspective. I think that's invaluable for sure. So I always like to end the podcast by asking my guests to wax philosophic, if you will, share your perspective on where quantum might be in three to five years and what the broader impact might be. I know it's speculative, but I think of it a comparative technology like the internet. When it first appeared, no one really knew what kind of impact it might have or how it might affect how we live and work. So I always want to get the take of thought leaders like you on what's the potential for quantum to transform these models. Yeah, so I think uh, in three to five years, um, we should have a, you know, we should have quantum computers that have quantum advantage uh, in the sense that it's not just like one demo on, you know, a specific calculation that may or may not have any use, uh, but really a universal quantum computer that can perform lots of calculations that a supercomputer can't keep up with. And you really only need about 50 to 100 qubits with low enough error rates to achieve that. And uh, I think we can get there uh, in the next three to five years. And I, I think, you know, with, with a system like that, um, we can also uh, start demoing some of these fault-tolerant quantum computing um, schemes, maybe crossing, maybe crossing the threshold for making a logical qubit um, with lower error rates than the physical qubit, right? That's a, that's a very big deal. And and moving forward, right? Moving towards uh, really uh, doing actual computations with logical qubits, which still can't do today. And, and so I think the public will be more aware of quantum computing and its potentials by that time. Um, more people will be uh, applying quantum computing to new applications. And uh, I know there will be useful applications for quantum computers in the coming years. Um, it may be limited at first, and some of the bigger impact you know, applications may take longer than that. You know, if you just think about how long it took you know, the semiconductor industry to develop, you know, it's like 
half a century later, we still have so many innovations today, right? And, and that's where we really, really feel the impact. Um, and I think quantum computing is going to be like that too. And we're just in the early stages. Uh, and uh, this is really exciting to be a part of that. Yeah. So it's like, stay tuned. It's going to be interesting, even more interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right? definitely. Well, Patty, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. I want to encourage listeners to follow you on LinkedIn, right? Yeah. Um, I want to point them to the website, honeywell.com slash quantum solutions. I always ask if you're hiring and based on a perusal of your webpage, it looks like you are. So there are many yes. opportunities listed on the, yes. on the page, the quantum uh, page, quantum mm -hmm. solutions. Yep. And as I said, you know, it's in, in lots of disciplines and doesn't matter uh, whether you have quantum background or not. Yeah. Um, please, please take a look. There are op there are lots of different opportunities. We also need support staff to keep the organization running. Um, so uh, a lot of people find that pretty exciting as well to be part of uh, part of the team. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's across a range of disciplines, right? Opportunities in, in quantum. So yes. Worth reiterating that for sure. Thank you for, for saying that. Patty, thank you so much. And I uh, look forward to continuing our conversation, maybe in real life at some point after the pandemic. Yeah, for we'll sure. get together in person and have a conversation. But I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, my conversation with Patty Lee, the Chief Scientist at Honeywell Quantum Solutions. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you at the next one. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.